The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning, and thank you for that warm welcome. I'd like to thank Mr. Jalovic for that very kind introduction, and the sentiment is certainly reciprocated. Uh, he is a dear, dear friend of mine. It's also very kind of him to delete from the adjectives that he attributed to my wife, patient, because uh, those 31 years have worked much patience in her. But um, I'm glad to bring the word of God to you this morning. That familiar passage that uh, Mr. Jalovic read is full of questions. And by that, I don't mean that it's full of um, mysteries or anything like that. I just mean it's an exchange of uh, questions between Jesus and an expert in the law of Moses. And I really like questions. I like asking them more than anything else. If uh, it is something that I am somewhat knowledgeable of, I enjoy trying to answer them. But I think questions are fascinating. And there is um, an exchange here of a give and take of question asking between this lawyer and Jesus. And the first one is found in verse 25, where Luke says that this lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We could restate the question here as, what does God require? Luke tells us that the, the questioner was a lawyer, a man whose expertise was in the interpretation and application of the law of Moses. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there are references and allusions to a future resurrection to blessedness. And being an expert, particularly in the law of Moses, this man decides to put Jesus to the test to see how good he is. And he asks him what he must do to be assured of participation in the life to come of the kingdom. If you want a fascinating study, read through the Gospels, paying special attention to all of the times that Jesus responds to questions with more questions. It was a common practice of his, and he never did it as mere avoidance, nor did he ever do it because he was ignorant of something. But as we have here, he did it to expose motives as well as to instruct. He knew that a well-placed question is often far more effective than a direct answer. So he turns the question back on the lawyer. You're an expert in God's law, he says. How do you understand it? And appropriately, the lawyer cites two familiar passages from the Mosaic law. The first comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, and um, it's called the Shema from the Hebrew word for hear, because it reads this way, Deuteronomy six, four and five, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the second text that he refers to is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The answer to the question, what does God require, is summed up in those two commands. Love God with your whole self. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty concise. That's succinct. But don't be fooled by the brevity of the answer. What is so easily stated is far from being easily lived out when properly understood. Our tendency is to sentimentalize these commands. So their force is diluted, weakened. We totally miss the demand of these commands if we think that all they're calling for from us are warm feelings towards God and other people. Another proneness we have is to agree with the imperative to love God and our neighbor and to call ourselves obeying that imperative by defining love as seems best to us. That won't do. The God who commands love also defines love. We can't say, I'll acknowledge the authority of the command, but I won't acknowledge the authority of his definition. It's a package deal. So what does it mean to love God? The verb that is translated as love in Deuteronomy 6 doesn't communicate so much an emotional response as it does one of covenant commitment that is lived out loyalty. It means to honor God, to obey him with all of my faculties. It's whole person obedience with my body, with my will, with my affections, with my mind. That's the point of the piling up of terms, heart, soul, strength, and mind. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Whatever it means, it's closely related to the command to love God, and that connection is seen in Leviticus 19, where the imperative to love your neighbor as yourself is followed by God's declaration, I am the Lord. In other words, to love my neighbor as myself is in some way to acknowledge the lordship of God. Dr. Mike Spiegel, who is a Cairn alumnus and presently chair of the Department of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, recently sent out a tweet that uh, captures this relationship. He said, to treat our fellow humans with grace, mercy, and love is to honor the God in whose image they are created. To treat our fellow humans with rudeness, contempt, and hate is to scorn God who calls us to treat his image bearers with dignity. But what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? There has been a lot of confusion about this. Some have sought to find in these words an implicit command to first love oneself and then after having mastered that, to love one's neighbor. But I'm convinced that that is completely wrongheaded. The command assumes that self-love already exists and calls me to use that as a standard of measure by which I love my neighbor. To love my neighbor as myself is to exert the same energy and determination that I expend pursuing my own well-being, what I think is good, in seeking the well-being of my neighbor. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, put it this way, if you want to know how you ought to love your neighbor, ask yourself how much 
you love yourself. If you were to get into trouble or danger, you would be glad to have the love and help of all men. You do not need any book of instructions to teach you how to love your neighbor. All you have to do is to look into your own heart and it will tell you how you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in verse 28 of Luke 10, Jesus commends the lawyer for his answer. He says, you've answered well, go do it. By saying this, was Jesus suggesting that eternal life could be gained by law-keeping? No. The, the weighty demand of the law must always be experienced if we're to cry out for the mercy of God and flee to Christ for salvation. But obviously, this was not the lawyer's reaction. He asked another question that you can find that in verse 29. And who is my neighbor? Now, if all the text said was he, he asked, who is my neighbor? we might be justified in concluding that these words came from a heart that was just eager and inquisitive about how to obey God's command. But that's not all the text says. Luke tells us that there was a self-seeking, sinister motive underlying this question. This wasn't an innocent inquiry. No, Luke tells us that the lawyer wanted to justify himself. That word is the same word from which we get the term justification, and it means to, to clear of a charge. Notice what was going on there. Faced with the obligation to love his neighbor as himself, he wanted to somehow narrow the field of those to whom he was responsible to exercise such love. He wanted to find some subset of humanity that qualified as neighbors so he could excuse his failure to love those outside that group. He was looking for some criteria by which to determine which human beings he was responsible to love. To put it plainly, he was seeking to rationalize his prejudices against and indifference toward certain others. He wanted to limit the scope of those to whom the obligation of neighbor love was due. He wanted to know who fit into the category of non-neighbor so he could be free from any nagging of his conscience by neglecting or overlooking them. Oh, how I want to wag my finger at this lawyer, siding with Jesus against him. But if I'm painfully honest, I have much more in common with him than is comfortable to admit. I have much more, even at this stage in my Christian life, I have much more in common with him than I do with Jesus. I want to strain people through a mental sieve, separating those I must care for from those I'm free to pass over. The truth of the matter is I want to be the one to determine who is deserving of my time and attention. Whom can I ignore? Whose eyes can I avoid making contact with today? Whose needs can I pretend not to see so I can go about my way pursuing what's most important and enjoyable to me? Who counts? Who doesn't? 
Over time, the Israelites came to understand the word neighbor as a reference limited to other members of the covenant community of Israel. If you look at the context of uh, Leviticus 19, 18, you can see somewhat how it is that they might have come to that misguided notion. If you read in Leviticus 19, starting with verse 16, you read the following, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. On the contemporary scene, people are still asking the same question, this justifying question, the self-justifying question, who is my neighbor? But it's with a twist. Instead of asking who is my neighbor, one modern version of the question is, who is a person? In the same way that the lawyer sought to identify a subset of humanity whom he was responsible to love, some claim that we are not morally obliged to treat all human beings as beings of intrinsic significance. No, we only have a moral obligation to those humans who qualify as persons, where personhood is understood as the ability to function in certain ways. Those human beings who fail to qualify according to these arbitrarily established standards are owed nothing by those who do, and can therefore be killed or neglected for the convenience and or the benefit of those acknowledged as persons. But that's only one variation of the question as it is asked today. Whom do you tend to place outside the boundaries of neighbor? The person whose politics are diametrically opposed to your own? People who process ideas differently than you, perhaps faster or slower? People who are more or less educated than you? People who just aren't into what you're into? those who you deem for whatever reason as not being cool. People who don't speak the same language as you do, or if they do, not as well. People from a different socioeconomic level than you are familiar with. People who are homeless or impoverished, maybe having a criminal past people who are ethnically different. Like the lawyer, we are prone to divvy up the pie of humanity and determine which slices it's okay not to love like we love ourselves. But that's not the way of Jesus. He won't entertain that question, who is my neighbor? Interestingly, he doesn't answer the lawyer's question. He refuses to grant the lawyer's request for some guidelines for who counts as a neighbor. In fact, he appears to dismiss it. Instead, he tells that story that we listen to, a story designed to raise a question he thinks is more important than the one the lawyer asked. Rather than asking, who is my neighbor? The question Jesus says we should be asking is, 
Am I being a neighbor? In that story, we read of this man, presumably a Jew, who was going down this treacherous road, beaten by robbers, left for dead, passed over by the religious elite, and then ministered to by a Samaritan. And through the attitude and actions of the Samaritan, Jesus teaches us that if our focus is on determining which humans we are bound to love and which we are not, we've got it all wrong. Instead of trying to figure out who counts as our neighbor, we are called to become neighbors to anyone in our path, even those whom we might not have regarded as worthy of our compassion. Jesus does violence to our selfish attempts to narrow the field of those for whom we have concern and demands that we widen the field to include those we would have otherwise overlooked, especially to those who are defenseless, weak, and subject to the exploitation of others. So what's involved in being a neighbor? From Jesus' account, I would say it can be summed up in two words. Costly compassion. All three of the passers-by in Jesus' parable are said to have seen the man's limp body on the side of the road. The priest and the Levite, both members of the religious elite, simply passed by on the other side so as to avoid contact with the wounded man who was presumably, as I said, a fellow Jew. Now, if you've ever watched the casting or if you've ever watched the, the credits at the end of a film, you'll know that there is someone um, who is credited as being responsible for casting. This is the person who decides who would fit best in what role. To many of Jesus' Jewish listeners, featuring the Samaritan as the hero in this parable was a very poor job of casting. The Samaritans get their name from the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they colonized that area by settling it with pagans from other nations. The Samaritans intermarried with these people from other nations and were therefore regarded by the Jews as half-breeds, traitors, unfaithful to the nation of Israel and to the covenant. There was an intentional shock value in Jesus' selection of the Samaritan. If he were trying to make the point today to an audience of Democrats, the Samaritan might be a Republican. Or if he were telling it to a crowd of Republicans, the hero would be a Democrat. You can detect the revulsion that the lawyer had for Jesus' choice of exemplar at the end of the parable when Jesus asked him which man proved himself to be a neighbor to the man who had fallen among the robbers. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he says, the one who showed mercy. It was only the Samaritan, a foreigner looked upon with contempt by most Jews who saw the man and responded as a neighbor. Verse 33 says, and when he saw him, he had 
compassion. The word used here is the same word used so frequently to describe Jesus' own motivation in doing the good works that he did for others. It's the word used in Luke 15 of the prodigal son's father when he saw him from a distance and felt compassion for him. It means to be deeply moved inwardly. In our efforts to uphold the truth that biblical love is more than a feeling, we need to be careful that we don't totally divest love of all feeling whatsoever. The Samaritan is presented as one whose merciful action was prompted by compassion. Not only does becoming a neighbor involve compassion, it involves cost. Think about what it cost the Samaritan to help the man left for dead by thieves. We're told he was on a journey, so he had a specific destination and probably a schedule in mind for reaching it. Being a neighbor may cost us our precious time. He spent his own oil and wine dressing a stranger's wounds. Being a neighbor may cost us our possessions. He put this weak man on his own animal, requiring that he walk the rest of the way. Being a neighbor often costs convenience and comfort. The Samaritan spent his own money to see that the man he rescued would have a place to stay, and he committed to paying for whatever care he required during his absence as he recuperated. Being a neighbor may cost us financially. One commentator offering a summary of this parable says this, rather than worrying if someone else is a neighbor, Jesus calls us to be a neighbor to those who have need. By reversing the perspective, Jesus changes both the question and the answer. He makes the call no longer one of assessing other people, but of being a certain kind of person in one's activity. Loving God with one's whole self and being a neighbor who exercises costly compassion to those in need, that's what God requires. But if my hope of eternal life hinged on how well I did that, I would have no reason for hope at all. But there is one who, like the Samaritan, was despised and rejected. One who flawlessly loved his father and who saw our dire spiritual need and gave not only what he had, but his very self for us. One greater than the Samaritan has come and paid a price to rescue and restore those ruined, not by thieves, but by our own waywardness. Moved by profound love for God the Father and deep compassion for us who were his enemies, he gave his life for us. To pardon us for our failure to love God and our neighbor, yes, but even more, to cause his spirit to live in us and transform us into people who are no longer preoccupied with the question, who is my neighbor, but with the question, to whom can I be a neighbor? For their good and to the glory of God. Let's pray.
Our Father, we do give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the triune plan and execution of redemption. We thank you for the compassion that we have been the recipients of, the compassion that moved Christ to give himself a great cost for us, to transform us, and to forgive us. We confess that we, like the lawyer, frequently seek to find ways to excuse ourselves for our failure to love you as you are due and to love those in need around us as we ought. Lord, we pray that today, by your Spirit, you would open our eyes, that you would animate us to love you more closely to what we should. And Father, when we're tempted to divert our gaze from people around us to whom we should be a neighbor, move us to move towards them for their good, for your glory. Father, divest us of our selfishness, our preoccupation with that which is most dear to us and make what is most dear to you more precious to us. We look at ourselves, we know that what we are asking is incapable of our achievement apart from your enabling. And so we pray in desperation and urgency, move in us so that we might become more like Christ in these ways. And it is in his name that we ask this with expectancy and hope. Amen.